Um, but I have a question for you. Are you a goal maker? Do you like setting a goal and, and, and having a target to hit? Or, or maybe you're a goal maker and you're a moving target. And that moving target is just as long as I'm better than the person next to me, whoever that is. When I play golf with people, that's the kind of goal maker I make them into. Like, if you're a good golfer and we golf together, I will make you bad, but you'll still beat me. So it's kind of a win. So that's, that's this idea of, of goal making. And um, the Olympics are next month, so I was thinking about that. Many of you may know the name of Eric Liddell. Uh, that's an older name. It's uh, of an Olympian in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, he was raised uh, at, by missionary parents, and he, believe it or not, 1924 had the chance to win five Olympic medals and had a decent shot at winning multiple gold medals in 1924. And so when he goes to the Olympics, I, just to tell you the feat that I, that is, number one, the number of people that have done that and won Olympics since 1906, at least until today, is, is about 50 people. That's all that's ever, ever done that, that just won five medals in general. general. He would be the only one to have won it and won games from uh, Scotland or what we call even Great Britain right now. He would be the most decorated single Olympian uh, that, that you know, but he's not. Because he found out a few months before the Olympics that his best event, the one that he was scheduled to win uh, the easiest route, help his country out, was the 100 meters. And in the 100 meters, they were going to run that on Sunday. And it was his conviction that Sunday was a day that you set aside for the Lord. That, that, that if you're going to do something for him, it's for him and for his glory alone. And so he withdrew from that race. And by withdrawing from that race, he disqualified himself from being a part of the relay as well. And so it greatly impacted him. It greatly impacted his country, his team. Uh, the relay he was going to run in when the substitute come in, came in, they did not win that relay. Uh, it, it was kind of an interesting scene. And you, and you have to ask the question, what makes you do that? What's, what's the why behind that? The morning before he ran the 400 meters, uh, which was his, his next event to run, his teammates gave him a slip of paper. And he opened that slip of paper, and this is what it says. The old book says, He that honors me, I will honor, wishing you the best of success always. Before he ever took a step, before he ever got on the track that day, his teammates realized that what he was doing had nothing to do with the personal goal of getting the most medals in one Olympics. He, he realized that in that moment, what he had to do wasn't making some political statement. It wasn't making even some church statement. It wasn't a deal he had made with his mom. They realized by him pulling out the sacrifice of all the practice, all the work everything that he had done was truly for a bigger why to honor the Lord I don't know if you've ever thought about that but why matters it, 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 we can have a lot of goals but what starts to happen when we, when we make those goals some of that driving behind that that why matters in fact I came across a graphic I'll let them put it on the screen this morning I came across a graphic this week talking about the impact of religion on our life do we have that graphic up there awesome 
So this was a, a study done, and in this study of Gen Zers, so if you were born between 1995 and 2010, this was that target group, and it says this, those who are flourishing in their faith a lot, somewhat, or not at all. This is how their whole life looks like. And that dark line that's bigger by double or triple than anyone else is, people who flourish in their faith live a better life. Isn't that, it doesn't say I'm happy with how much money's in my bank account. It doesn't say my car is the splashiest on the street. This doesn't say my children are perfect. None of those things are up there. But if you look at it, those who are not flooring in their, in their faith are triple, maybe quadruple in some cases, likely to not think that life is going well in areas of home, finances, physical health, mental health, work, relationships with others. Now you can come back to me for a moment. Now, here's what I thought, started thinking when I saw that graphic. When I saw this graphic pop in, do you know what my first thought was? Why? That was the first thing. And so I, I went to the group that did the study and I start pulling through their stuff and, uh, or the group that did the report. The report pointed me to the study. I'm digging through it because what I really want to find out is what did you mean by faith? How many different kinds of faiths did you have? I wonder what the difference is between people who are flourishing in their faith as Christians versus those of other religions. Like, how do they sink? I, I wanted to get way deep into that. None of that was to be found. None of that could be found. But what I did find is this, is this truth below the surface. When I dig in, those who find themselves walking the fence of faith or who avoid faith altogether tend to find life wanting much more often than those who are embracing faith. So why? Why would that be the case? Now, I, I couldn't look to a report for this. I couldn't go into this. So I had to go back into the Word a little bit with this. This is what the Word tells us. And it was written, written way before this study was done, right? So listen to what Psalm 37, verse 3 through 6 says this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. In fact, what scripture says hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this test was taken, before you and I ever took a breath, is this, is that those who are faithful, who lean into the Lord and find their delight and their joy in the Lord, that the Lord will produce the desires of their heart. That the Lord will produce and bring forth light where there is darkness. In other words, lean into the Lord and taste and see how good he is. I thought, well, that makes perfect sense with this study. No, no wonder. People who lean into the Lord are happy, and we can do a thousand studies on top of it. It's going to keep proving itself true because Scripture said so before it was ever written. Now listen to what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14. The Bible says it this way. It says, And he gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith, 
and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the willingness of Christ. Now listen to verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, and by craftiness of deceitful schemes. See, what, what Scripture says is this, is when we draw near to God, we become stronger so that we're not bounced around by, well, I heard someone say this, or, or I read this the other day, or I saw a documentary on the History Channel about the lost book of blank from the Bible. And, and it was really well made. So therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm walking through, and what the Bible says is this, no one likes living a seasick life. Amen? Are any of you fishermen? Anyone ever hear deep sea fish? You raise your hand if, you're, if you've gone deep sea fishing a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So here's what a friend of mine told me. He took me out on his boat one time, and he said, listen, I want you to come fishing with us. I want you to bring cold fried chicken because that helps you feel better. You don't get seasick. Let me tell you all the truth. Fried chicken has nothing to do with seasickness, except it gives you something to be sick over. Amen? So, so we're out on this boat, and, and, I, and I, I told him when I went, I don't like being far from land, and so I love you, and I was his pastor at the time. Like, here's the deal. When it's time to go home, I need you to turn the boat and go home because if I don't feel good and you're not turning around, I'm pushing you over, and I'm going home. Like, I don't like this feeling of being tossed back and forth. And I think in our faith, many times we might define ourselves as people who are just, just seasick, trying to get close to God, running away from God, trying this for God, trying that for God, stopping this for God. And then, and, and what scripture says is, you don't want to live a life like that because it doesn't feel good. It leaves you wanting and I thought, well, that's what the study showed thousands of years later is when we're just bouncing all the time, we're wanting. Now, go a step further, and we can look at uh, a story you're familiar with in Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. I just want to read you to verse 12 and verse 17. Jesus tells this parable to get across the point, but the revelation in the middle of it speaks powerfully to God's word. Um, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says this, and there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So a pause right there. If you don't know the story, the tradition was everyone, every son gets an inheritance when dad dies, but the oldest son got an extra portion, double portion, sometimes triple portion to make sure the family uh, could endure so the lineage could go. And this son said, dad, I want my money today that you're supposed to give me tomorrow. In other words, I am avoiding you. I am walking away from you. I'm going to do life my own way. And if you'll just give me some seed money, then that will be the good life. I won't be feeling like I'm feeling right now. Verse 17 says this. <clears throat> After the young man had gone around, he said, when he came to himself, he says, how many of my hired father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And here I perish with hunger. See, the parable in the story, what Jesus says is this, is that when you and I take what is God, completely ignore him, leave him out of our life, and do our best with what we have, at the end of the day, we'll come up wanting. There will be a time and a place where we realize, I've messed something up. I, I, I didn't do this right. See, 
God didn't hide truths. I mean, I, I, I love studies. I love reading about studies. But, but when we look in the word, God didn't hide any of these things from us. When we draw near to God, we experience fullness. When we pull back from God, we experience wanting. That's really the way it is. And just so you know, you could look around, if anyone ever says this, that no one next to you is God, right? And so you're not living to please that person. You're living to draw near to God and find out that is where life is. So when you think about what you're doing in life, all of your goals, my question is this, why are you doing that? What's the why? And what happens when you, when you get that why? What, what happens when you reach that goal and in that moment, you, you, you've, you've been satisfied, there's no drive, there's no challenge. If, if your, your goal is to have a big bank account so you can buy what you want when you want, if your goal is to have a relationship with your wife that's stable and secure and you get to go on fun things every now and then, if your goal is to raise children and get them out of the house without blowing up the house or without returning and blowing up the house, whatever it might be, when your goal, if your goal is to be popular, if it's to be healthy, if it's to be at the top of the food chain at work, whatever it is, what happens when you get there? I'll give you a hint. The goal no longer becomes captivating and the why becomes completely intoxicating. And if the why that you have been chasing after in the goals of your life is too small, it will be devastating. It will be crushing because that's the mind that we live in why do you want a happy marriage why do you want children who are successful why why do you want to go to work why do you want that promotion why do you want three weeks of vacation that's that's the why that matters. And what scripture points to is that it's so important. It's the first word of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter two. Mary and Joseph have lost Jesus. They went into town. They left out. It's been about three days and they can't find the Messiah. Now y'all listen, that's a bad day. If you lost the savior of the world, that would be a bad moment. <clears throat> so coming back to town, he's teaching in the temple. And in teaching the temple, his mom says in France, frantic craziness, and probably that mom anger voice. Have, y'all know what I'm talking about, mom? If you lost a child in the, in the grocery store before, don't raise your hand because I don't want anyone coming after you. But we, we have. When you find them, it's relief. And what, what does that trade place with? Anger. Like, where have you been? So I can imagine that moment. And she's asking Jesus, why did you do that? What, what's going on? Why are you here? And he says, mom, why were you looking for me somewhere else? See, why matters so much? It's not about the moment. It's not about the anxiety. It's about remembering that you're a part of something bigger. And that something bigger has to be so big that it sustains you in every area of life. 
You see, that's the difference between a rock and a game of hopscotch. A game of hopscotch, you find a foundation on whatever step your number you're stepping on. But a rock, no matter where you walk on it, is your foundation. What scripture says is that in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus, we're part of a bigger relationship. And that bigger relationship, church, can sustain us and give us purpose and reason in every area of life. Now listen, look with your Bible, look with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter is writing to the church. And he's been giving them some, some goals, so to speak. In verse 10, he says a phrase we're just going to rip apart for the next 10 or 15 minutes. And the Bible says this in 1 Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, so let's start to understand why it's so important that we turn all that we have over to God and allow the why of him to be more important than the what in what we're doing. The first part of that verse, the Bible says this, as each has received a gift. Church, what, what scripture says is that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of his, that you have been given a gift that no one is left out, no one is a side thought or an afterthought, but God, when we come into his family, he equips the members of his household to, to be a part of his great plan. And so you haven't been left out. In fact, Paul would go through in other places of scripture and says, don't compare gifts. Because when you're comparing gifts, you're talking about valuing the Lord and, and not about what, valuing yourself and not the Lord. And so, listen, when the Lord says, as each of you has received a gift, Peter uses a word that's charisma. That's what the Greek word uh, gift means. Now, there's two meanings to this word, an old word and a new word, right? The old word is this. It means favor freely given or power divine, divinely bestowed. That's what charisma means. Favor freely given to you or power divinely bestowed on you. If you would have used that word throughout hundreds and hundreds of years, you would have known that if someone says, man, they have, they have charisma and, and you can see it. They're, they're talking about that God has, a, has anointed them. He has given them something. He's given them favor and put on them. But today, the modern definition, if you were to look it up right here and right now, means filled with attractiveness and charm. Right? If you said, man, that right now, if you said, I just saw a guy walking through the grocery store and boy, they had charisma. Do you know what you just said out loud? They were good looking and nice. They were likable. People just swarmed to them. They just flocked to them. See, somewhere along the way, we have looked and taken a word that means God has added to us to mean, look what I've got. When we twist God's words, we start to see the impact of sin in our life. A great way to think of that was this Saul, King Saul in Scripture, the first king of Israel. The Bible says that he was tall, he was strong, he was a handsome dude. In fact, when Samuel saw him and he was the one, he thought, I'm all right with that. 
you can carry the clan. You can get it rolling. Saul didn't want it. He's the only guy to hide from God behind some hay when they're trying to find the king. He's like, not me. He wasn't in his heart what God had called for the people, but he's what the people asked for God. So, so Samuel saw what he looked like and said, that's him. When Samuel saw David, he wasn't impressed. In fact, he was completely neglected by all of his brothers because he wasn't tall. He wasn't much to look like. By the world's definition, he did not have charisma. Church, how you define the word charisma will start to dictate your why in life. See, if you believe that what you have been given and bestowed upon you is yours to use for your personal goals, for your personal directions, for your personal handling of happiness, you stick your hand out with the prodigal son and say, God, give me not what you freely bestow on me, not what you divinely graced me with, but give me what you owe me and let me show you what I can do. You see, because only when we see charisma as something bigger than us, something outside of us, do we start to understand what it means to live as a steward of God's why. Look at back at 1 Peter verse, uh, 4, verse 10. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Use it to serve one another. You see what scripture says here? It starts to redefine our framework. Church, if you are a believer, then you have a gift. If you use that gift for yourself, then you are using what God has given you to rebel against him. Not to bring him glory. Not to show him what you can do. When, when the 2,000 years, so to speak, of redefining charisma takes hold in your life church then the why is creation centric not creator centric have you ever found yourself there let me give you an example of it this way god has anointed many in this room as a husband a christian leader in your home when you use that role for show for self when when your family becomes your power tool set to build what you want you are using something god has given you to create an idol that is an affront to him see when god gives us a gift it's not for show it's not just to get attention on ourselves it's for him and for his glory we use it to serve others you see our why is our motivation and our validation and it can be misused all over the place i think it's impossible uh, to get away from this draw in the world today in fact, I took a few months off of Facebook because I found myself just being a little irritated every day. Anybody ever find themselves irritated by what you read on Facebook? People that you love wholeheartedly and you say, oh, did they just say that? Did they just type that? Maybe I did that. Here's what I started to think. Our culture has not suddenly embraced a modern definition of charisma. 
Our culture has slowly assumed the mantle of redefining God's word, and the church lives in that culture, and there are times when culture comes in, and we try to blend culture and Jesus for God's glory, and it doesn't work, because anytime we take creation and that why and mix it in with God's why, we make it us-centric. I, just think about the movements of our world today. There's no middle ground. I think about this. I was reading an article by a, uh, by a rancher. I love reading where meat and steak comes from. I'm a happy person to do that. And the, the news guy, the journalist said, so do you call yourself environmentalist? He said, man, that word has become a buzzword for the world. But he said, I've never met a rancher that wants all of his grass dead, his cow starving to death, and bad meat coming out. And I thought, man, what a great way to say that. Because right now, it seems like, and it makes its way into the church, somehow our Christianity has to do with we are here to serve creation and put it above ourself. Uh, I can't believe someone would say that miserable, liberal craziness. Or the world, God told us to rule over it, which means I need all the cheap junk now that I want. And who are you to get in my way? That's the good Christian doctrine. You follow me? See, when we start to allow culture to infiltrate the whys of our giftedness, then we start messing up the why of the creator. So if God has given you the gift of prophecy, will you use it for his why above all over everything else? If God has given you the why of administration, evangelism, if God has given you the ability to teach, to be hospitable, to be loving, if God has given you those things and put a passion on your life to be a part of his kingdom, here's the question. Are you allowing your why to be purely of God? Or are you wanting and letting the world's culture, passions, comforts, fights, battles mix in? I think in our graphic, that's why much of the church finds itself in the middle. Our why is too small, and we don't see ourselves for who God's made us to be. Chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of, what does your Bible say next? God's. I want to let that soak in for a second. As good stewards of God's. A steward, the, the word means a manager. Biblically, if you were to get the picture, it was, it was the, the servant of the homeowner who was in charge of making sure the house was in good condition, the family was in good condition, that, that the children were doing well, that the, the jobs and the, the market was going well, the business of the family was going well. A manager had a high role, but that role found itself underneath Jesus or underneath the, the manager or the homeowner. I want you to think, what happens if a homeowner says to someone, uh, we'll use me. I'm gonna go, we got a trip over the next three days. I'll be out for a little bit. Christy and the kids will be taking care of life. If I were to come up to one of you men in the room and say, listen, while, my wife, while I'm gone out of town, I need you to take care of my wife, my family, just make sure everything's good. Do you think I'm saying, would you come sleep in my bed, drive my car, spend my money, 
and do whatever you want for my office? Raise your hand if you think, yep, that's what you mean, Pastor. Yeah, you're all smart, brilliant. That is not what I'm saying, right? That's ridiculous, isn't it? Because that's not stewardship. That's usurping a role. That's using a, a gift that's been afforded to you. Hey, I trust you. Make sure everything's okay to your own glory. And what scripture says is this. When you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, live as stewards, we are managing what belongs to God. It's not on loan to you. I mean, I would just, catch that God is not he's not taking some of his giftedness and giving it to you to loan it to you what is in your pocket oh this is gonna be hard put your hand on your pocket if there's something in it phone wallet I don't I don't keys that's not on loan to you that belongs to the Lord put your hand on your heart that's not on loan to you that's his He's just got it stored in this location. Are you following me? When you and I see ourselves as steward of God's things, then all of a sudden the big why infiltrates every corner of our life and we start to understand where joy settles. Church, I, I want to ask you a question. In the greatest disappointments and hurts in your life, who was in control? Who was in control of your mouth? In those bitter fights that you can't ever get those words back, were, were you stewarding your lips to the glory of God? Or were you just using them to protect yourself in the moment? Those biggest financial Failures. And I'm not talking about losing money. I'm talking about the times when what you have made you feel small. Who was in control? Were you trying to be the son saying, God, give me what I can and I'll show you what I can do? See, when creation becomes our focus and the creator is not, we cease being stewards. I love how this passage ends. As each has received a gift, everybody has who's a believer in Jesus Christ, use it to serve one another. Why? Because you're a good steward of what is God's, not as what's yours, of God's varied grace. It's almost as if you were to write this on your household. You could write, I am a steward of God's, and this put parentheses with a blank. And there may be some words that, that stay, but there may be words you add to it all the time. I am a steward of God's family. I'm a steward of, of God's finances. I am a steward of God's world. I am a steward of God's relationship. I'm a steward of God's friendship. I'm a steward of, of God's teaching. I'm a steward of God's truth. It's, it's just very grace, church. Because the gift was never the focus. The focus was the modifier, which gives us purpose. Steward of God's. It's more than a recommendation. 
The Bible says this, and Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It is required. If, if I went out of the country and the person I left in charge of my household came back and stewarded it for his wanting and not for mine, do you know what happens when I land on the ground? A day of reckoning. A day of accountability, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A day of judgment. But to that same person who I leave behind, when I come back and my family is thriving and, and, and the, the will in my heart is being carried out, and this person has been a steward, when I return, it's not a day of judgment, it's not a day of reckoning, it's a day of celebration. It's a day of thanksgiving. It's a day of hope and joy. One is the one given to the required steward of God's grace. And the other is to the one who has wasted life on himself. So the invitation is a little different today. I, I want to I ask you first to be praying about what do you have that you've been treating as yours. Um, but we know walking a road alone, it's impossible to hold the line. And we believe wholeheartedly that God has brought the people in this room and the people who are watching, that he's brought us together for a reason. So when you sat down, there's a blue card in your chair. There's not one online. There's a blue card in your chair. And, and I just want you to begin praying over this right now. On January 30th, we're going to be starting up small groups, not just on campus, but off campus too. And I know a New Year's resolution, revelation or, or resolution that you make on your own, you probably have about 30 days before you stop. And so we believe that God has designed us for community and connection and relationship and encouragement as stewards. And so this is what I want to invite you to. I want you to sincerely pray about being a part of a small group this year at First Baptist. The small groups that start in January will, will be a commitment for five and a half, six months. And I want to compel you. Let's be stewards together and not simply individually. So if God puts it on your heart today, you can fill it out and you can drop it in the offering box on the way out. If you need to pray about it because you've never made a commitment, I give you permission, fold it up, put it in your pocket but don't forget about it and don't just throw it away put it before the Lord and say God to be a steward of the very grace that you've given me I think I'm going to need others to encourage me and pray about joining a small group over the next three weeks these cards will be out every week and on the 30th we'll have a, a grand celebration church God has a full life, the best life waiting for us. It's not a secret. It's not hidden. Draw near to him and experience life. Draw back from him. Experience wanting. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. 
Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, in this moment, in this place, we want to be stewards. And if we're going to be a steward, God, why matters? Why should we be in a small group? Why should I have a quiet time with the Lord? Why should I memorize scripture? Why should I journal and write notes to my King and Lord? Why should I be silent? Why should I fast? Why should I lead my family? Why should I be faithful? It matters, God. And so today, as we begin this journey, Lord, remembering that we're a part of a bigger relationship. Father God, let it begin with us owning the why. Because I am a steward of the God most high, the creator and the king. That's the only why I need. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand with me? And as we have a time of response, if you need to come and pray at the front, Pastor Mike and the deacons will be up here if you want someone to pray with. Uh, after this time, if you just need to be still with the Lord, but you want to talk to someone in the Connection Center, we'll have uh, people out there waiting, looking for you. would love to visit with you about a decision to follow Christ. They'd love to visit with you about what it means to be a part of the church or just pray over you. But let this time be a time where your heart responds to God's calling. Well, I need you to soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to open my eyes to see that you're shaping my life. All I am, I surrender. Give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and your love is because tomorrow it won't be there. And so 
I know, I know that the desire to want, but what scripture shows us, what studies will reveal to us that God is faithful. And in your life, look at what he has given you. I don't care how small you think it is. I don't care how insignificant you think it is. I I challenge you to understand that that is the treasure of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's not letting you borrow it. He's trusting you to draw near to him with it and to bring him glory. Test the Lord. If it feels too late to start, test the Lord. In our home, we'll say it a thousand times. The best time to plant an oak tree is 30 years ago. But the next best time is when, church? Today. Today. So start today. If you're joining us for our membership lunch, you'll be out this door to the right. You can go ahead and start eating and I'll join you shortly. If you're saying, I would love to hear more about what First Baptist Church is, uh, we've got a few extra. If you're not a member, we'd love for you to to sneak in and to, to join us as well, to hear what God's put on our heart. But more important than anything else, put your hands on your pockets, your heart, your brain, your eyes, whatever it is. That is possession of the King of Kings. And he has favorably trusted you with it to bring him glory. God bless you, church. Let me pray. Father, you are good. Lord, I know our histories are varied. Maybe our present place is varied. But God, you've made it clear. You're not hiding it. We can draw near to you starting now. At 25, 55, 85. And you can show us what real life is. Or we can keep rustling through life, seasick, wondering when stability will be found. God, and you're saying it's right here. I'm your why. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. I may be weak. Your spirit strong in me, my flesh may fail, my God, you never will. I may be weak, your spirit strong in me, my flesh may fail, my God, you never will. Trust what you say